Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the Podmetic, and we are really going to have a fantastic um, show tonight. Um, I'm really looking forward to our topic, and I'll let Sam take care of the introductions to that. And of course, that means we have to bring Sam in the show. Hey, Sam. Hey, Jamie. I don't know how things are on the East Coast, but uh, we're getting into a freeze here in Colorado starting tonight. So it was like this very abrupt change of the season. I imagine that's happening pretty much everywhere else. Yeah, we've got abrupt um, we've got abrupt stuff going on here. It was cold over the previous weekend, and we're heading into a, a bit of a warm front, which I'm sure we'll be able to talk about um, here. But it's going to be up close to 80 degrees coming up here this oh. weekend here in Maryland. So, uh, yeah. Well, we're freezing. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, how's it down there in Memphis, Joe? Uh, actually, <laughs> surprisingly uh, warm, uh, unseasonably warm, and uh, we haven't had a rain in probably a month and a half. So uh, we're due for some cool weather and some rain. Wow. There you go. Well, we got the cool weather, uh, Dan DePodwin. You want to tell us what's going on with that and how much of the the country is going to be in the deep freeze this weekend? Yeah, good to be here, Sam. And it's it's been a you know it's certainly the end of October. You can tell the seasons are changing. Uh, last blast of summer in the east this weekend, with temperatures well into the 70s and 80s, all the way up into the northeast. It's been a pretty nice week in many places too in that area. That will come to an abrupt end, though, come next week as we head into Halloween. Looks like it's going to be a pretty chilly Halloween, so frightful weather, sort of, maybe for your Halloween (laughs) festivities on Tuesday in the Northeast. The chillier in places like Chicago and up into the Great Lakes could have some snow flying, actually, on Halloween night. So it's going to be certainly changing. And then out west, Sam, by you, it looks like the first uh, accumulating snow of the season out in Colorado with several inches uh, across the front range there, plenty in the mountains. So uh, it's certainly moving into late fall and early winter with uh, first major snowstorm in the uh, northern plains, northern Rockies, uh, ending here this evening on Thursday night as we speak. And then, again, that that's a storm for, for you, Sam, and folks out in the Denver area on Saturday and Saturday night. Oh, boy. Can't wait. When winter starts, it doesn't stop. It just keeps on going. Well, we have an amazing story tonight. Unless you lived under a rock the beginning of September uh, and never watched the news, you wouldn't have seen the story about Mark Dickey. Um, Mark is a friend of a friend of mine, and that's how I got to know him. This guy is an accomplished explorer and rescuer, but he himself had to be rescued. And uh, we'll talk about how it was quite an ordeal, apparently. And we have his fiance with us, Jessica Van Ord. And uh, thank God she was there. She's a paramedic who uh, basically took care of business once she found out what was going on with him. So um, let's start out. Mark, why don't you tell us about your background? You're, you're, you're a member of a number of organizations and so forth. And, you know, how'd you get into caving and that kind of thing? Absolutely. Hi, Sam. It's a pleasure to be on the Disaster Podcast. Uh, my background in emergency services goes goes back uh, quite a few decades. I was a member of a volunteer fire department, EMS, technical rescue team, uh, police department, 
And then from there, I moved on to a, a cave rescue team, which is more closely associated with that recent rescue. Uh, I'm currently the chief of that team. I'm also a national instructor for the National Cave Rescue Commission and one of the SPAR lead instructors. It's also my pleasure to be at a travel internationally, and I spend a decent amount of time over in Europe. And I am the secretary for the medical commission, actually, of the European Cave Rescue Association. So uh, all sorts of preparations to be on the, the rescue side of things. But uh, unfortunately, I ended up on the patient side. Well, that's, that's what's interesting about the story. And it seems like a lot of the people you work with uh, came to your rescue. And that, that's, that's a pretty neat part of the story we'll get to. Uh, Jessica, what about you? What's your background? Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, let's see. I actually met Mark when he interviewed me for my first EMS agency uh, 12 years ago. So that was my start in emergency medical services and quickly also got into cave rescue when I started caving in 2016. And I've been a regional specialist, so helping teach the, the cave rescue courses for quite a few years now. And um, we also focus on training beginners. So I'm a uh, Northeastern Regional Coordinator for the NSS Vertical Training Commission. And there's another nonprofit called Caving Academy and another organization called The Gauntlet. And those are all organizations which uh, help those new cavers learn safe caving techniques. Well, I didn't mention that Dr. Joe, along with being an ER doc, is also a USAR doc. So he's kind of used to climbing into things, um, <laughs> getting people out and taking care of them. So I'm sure this will be of great interest to you, right, Joe? Absolutely. I, I'm uh, familiar with the story, but not the details. So I can't wait to hear about the uh, inside story. Well, the interesting thing about that, and, and Mark warned me about this, he said, you know, not everything you would have read in all these various articles was actually true. And I found out there are a lot of inconsistencies uh, in those stories. So we'll hear the real story tonight. So let's start with that. So um, where is this place you were, Mark, where you were, Mark, and, and, and how did you get involved in this particular um, area of caving? So I was over in the country of Turkey um, at a cave, Morja. It is one of a couple thousand meter deep caves in that geographic region. Um, and that region is a, a plateau, which has uh, essentially in the, the world of caving, one of the things you focus on is how deep does the cave go? So this plateau is uh, provides us with about 2000 meters worth of possible cave depth. Um, and so that's a very exciting location. So last year I had gone out on an expedition when I was invited there to uh, push some uh, something called a lead climb or a bolt climb uh, down below a thousand meters. And this year we came back to keep pushing that same climb and see if we could find some new sections to the cave. I was looking at what this looked like. I'm trying to visualize this all. And I guess the air is very heavy. They have 100 percent humidity. And the temperature was about 39 degrees, which probably didn't help your situation at all. Um, they have very, they have vertical shafts and a lot of narrow passages, which of course was a bit of an issue uh, getting you on out of there. So, what actually happened, Mark? To kind of walk us through that story. Absolutely. Um, 
So down below 1,000 meters, there's the camp at 1,040, and that's kind of your home base when you're, when you're down there. And Jessica and I had proceeded about an hour's worth of loaded travel farther into the cave to the climb. And that climb, uh, I had pushed it last year with Jessica, and it is about 100 meters tall. And I was about 80 meters up on that climb, give or take. And a whole host of symptoms hit me. Now, these were totally unexpected. I've had absolutely no um, prior uh, medical concerns in this area. Um, I have had no symptoms, no signs, no reason to believe that this illness was going to strike. So it was a total surprise um, on that climb when about maybe 10 meters below Jessica, I was hit with uh, dizziness, weakness, um, an immediate need to vomit and need to defecate. Um, I was feeling uh, even lightheaded as though I might fall unconscious. Uh, and they uh, came on very suddenly. So I uh, essentially tried to get to Jessica as best as I could. I, I It feels like I clawed my way there, although obviously you're on rope and have your ascending system going. So I climbed my way to Jessica, continuing up the rope, and just started calling out all the symptoms that I was feeling so she'd have some semblance of knowledge. Um, Luckily, I did not fall unconscious. Uh, While Jessica is an accomplished rescuer and easily could have saved me from 80 meters up on rope, it's a lot lot more pleasant uh, to be able to get yourself down. And after maybe 10 minutes or so, while the symptoms did not particularly improve, the evaluation uh, that I made is that I should be able to safely descend. Uh, So Jessica did something called the changeover for me. She changed out my gear from ascending to descending. And then I rappelled down, passing two rebelays, got down to the ground. And that was where the first sign of uh, just how serious things could be happened. Um, Jessica got down right behind me, asks what I need, and uh, I am currently stripping all my gear off to be at a either vomit or go to the bathroom. I wasn't sure which or maybe both at the same time. And uh, I told her I needed privacy. Um, And so she immediately headed off to actually get help because she knew that something serious was happening. And that was was when I had a black tarry stool. That was uh, not a good sign. Um, And from there, I started making my way back to the camp at negative 1040. And then uh, Jessica has her side of the story there. Yeah. So, Jessica, you know, what were you thinking when you first realized something was really wrong with him? Well, uh, I didn't quite know how serious it was until I got back and found the stool. Now, the strange thing was that I had gone to get some sort of uh, GI medication just so if he had diarrhea, it'd be more comfortable to go back to camp. And when I got back to him, he was gone. And in a cave, you don't travel alone. It's just unsafe if you need help. You want someone there, right there with you. But I could tell, obviously, he thought it was more important to get back as quick as possible. And then I realized we were actually dealing with internal bleeding. So the the immediate thought is just, what what do we do next? <laughs> so I start talking to the rest of the team and ask if they're ready to go out immediately for help, like if they're up for it, because it's the very end of the day, and just trying to gather his symptoms and assess him and see what he needs. So luckily, he made it back to camp on his own, and we just sort of had to make a plan. And 
being a thousand meters deep in a cave in Turkey, it's not like someone can just come get you out <laughs> right away. So we knew that he would be there a while regardless. And normally when I have a patient with internal bleeding, I take them to the hospital. <laughs> but in this case, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we needed to bring the hospital to him. So my my first goal was just medical consultation. So uh, eventually we made it up to the surface. Unfortunately, the the phone, there is a phone at 500 meters camp and it was not working at the time. So that's why we did the full thousand meter climb up and made a bunch of phone calls, got the initial plan and um, yeah. And then eventually I got back down to him and was able to start the treatment. Now, it was honestly just a godsend that those medications even arrived because we had no idea how the Turkish government would react. Like, would this be full of politics and no one could come to the cave or or what? And it turns out that they were they were the entity that made those medications arrive. And it was it was uh, a game changer because even though the Hungarians were able to send a doctor right away, she was about 23 hours behind me. Um, I just, I honestly don't know if he would have made it that long. He was uh, certainly going to hemorrhagic shock and hardly conscious when I get back to him. Well, Mark, it, by the time you got to your um, your camp, you were losing blood. I mean, you were start, you were vomiting blood at this point, right? Um, is there some point in time that you didn't think you were going to get out of there? There was a point in time in which I wasn't sure if I'd make it, although it wasn't quite then. Uh, the, the progression of symptoms was kind of a steady worsening. Um, getting back to camp, it was knowledge of an internal bleed, but it wasn't even certain if it was an active bleed or whether it, it had essentially been just a very slow bleed um, that had managed to stop itself. And so that evening, um, there were no further symptoms other than the bloody stool. Uh, in the morning, unfortunately, is when I vomited not fresh blood, but what was older coagulated blood. And it obviously could have had newer blood mixed into it, but it was, it was you know, essentially partially digested. Um, and that's the moment that Jessica had left um, with that level of knowledge. A couple hours later, I then started vomiting fresh blood, uh, which also just because now my stomach was empty, so then everything that I vomited was just the fresh blood. And that message was then sent out with another team of two, updating Jessica, who at that point was on the surface, already in um, consultation with doctors and collecting medical supplies, and that upped the urgency of the response. The uh, That key moment you asked about, the moment that I wasn't sure if I was going to make it, happened in between um, the Jessica's leaving and my symptoms worsening and then Jessica getting back. Um, my, my estimate of blood loss is very conservative and is in the range of 1.5 liters. Uh, Zudi, who is the um, doctor from the Hungarian team that arrived first uh, shortly after, well, not shortly after Jessica, but in the scope of cave rescue shortly after Jessica, um, estimates that in total I lost quite a bit more blood than that. Um, but uh, at the worst of the loss in blood volume, um, we were 
not able to count a radial pulse. Uh, we were periodically losing um, any pulse at all radial, and they had to switch to a carotid. Um, I was in, you know, obviously laying down, and essentially people were prepared to just put me into a, you know, head down, legs up position if uh, I lost consciousness completely. And uh, that was that. So that was the time. That was the time that I was quite positive that if someone didn't get back reasonably soon with the ability to either stop the bleed or provide fluids, provide transfusion, that I probably wouldn't be getting out of the cave, that I would probably die right there. Oh, my God. Lucky man. So, Joe, I'm hearing symptoms of both uh, upper and lower GI bleed. What are, what kind of things would um, could have been happening? Because they certainly didn't know at the time. Sure. Yeah, uh, I agree. I mean, this sounds like this could have been, a, a, you know, an ulcer, uh, a tear in the esophagus, uh, any number of things. It, it, it sounds like it was completely asymptomatic prior to uh, being very symptomatic uh, when the blood loss was pretty substantial. So uh, whatever happened, happened uh, quickly and the blood loss was pretty aggressive uh, pretty quickly. So uh, very frightening that you're down to the point of uh, barely got a carotid pulse left, and I'm sure you were, your blood pressure was, you know, low, quite low, and you were in shock. And uh, I can only imagine how uh, in, uh, incredibly frightening that feeling is, especially in a situation where you feel like there's no uh, immediate access to what you need. Absolutely. Just to jump in, it was the radial pulse, uh, not the carotid that we were losing. So the radial was lost, but they were continually able to obtain the carotid pulse. So it wasn't that critical. Gotcha. We were we were going downhill, but we weren't that far downhill. Well, that, that would still imply that your systolic blood pressure was, you know, down around 90, which uh, for, a, you know, a healthy, uh, fit guy like you are is uh, uh, got to be pretty symptomatic for you. It was. So I, I, I had to feel for Jessica reading this one piece in one of the articles saying that 36 hours after you'd left, when you got back, you found him in a fetal position, pale, eyes closed, and barely speaking. I mean, I can't imagine what that felt like. Honestly, surprisingly, I was slightly relieved because I had heard that he was sweaty all the time and he was not diaphoretic when I got there. So he's actually slightly better than I expected, but not good at all. Uh, he wasn't making sentences. He was just speaking one word at a time, uh, linking the thoughts together if he really had to. So it was certainly scary. Uh, he actually did have his radio pulse back when I got there and I had to start my first IV in five years uh, on him right there. He started vomiting red blood right as it was happening. And I actually had food poisoning when I got there as well. Uh, so it was just all around an interesting situation. But yeah, it was it was just a relief that I was there and that I had the fluids at that point. Well, it, and you had the IV fluids, plus there were some transfusions going on that I guess you had to heat over a camp stove or something. Yeah, so I arrived with IV fluids and proton pump inhibitors so that we could lower the acidity in the stomach and help the bleed. Um, 
also I had some Zofran so that he could keep pills down because they gave me limited uh, instructions just as a medic. When Zudi arrived later, she was followed with blood shortly after, and she gave him four blood transfusions. So the first two were certainly critical. Uh, finally, he was making full sentences by the ends of those and resting comfortably eventually not even in the fetal position anymore. So that was that was a relief to just see him getting back to his normal self. And then the essentially the the fourth uh, blood transfusion was because the cave itself actually is the correct temperature for the blood storage, which is excellent. But once you heat it up, you have to administer it. And they had heated four uh, units actually in a sleeping bag. So took a little nap with the blood before giving it to Mark. And as it was being infused, it was quite painful to give him the blood that was cooling in the tube on the way to his IV. So that was why we had that continuous heat from a heat pad uh, hanging from the tent. Yeah, I can only imagine a different version of brain freeze. But remember, it was like in the 30s down there. Um, Jamie, what are you thinking? I'm I'm just really, you know, running through my own checklist of you know, what would I do if um, and, you know, it, we talk a lot on the show about austere environments. And I don't think we get much more austere than being in the depths of a cave where you're hours away from from getting assistance and um, getting the help that, that you need and only being able to bring in certain amounts of, of necessary equipment or resources. Uh, must have been very challenging. Um, Jessica, what point did you deem Mark ready to move? So I actually wasn't there for that. They sent in other doctors who essentially wanted their part of the action, and I was sent out because they in cave rescue, it's a general rule to remove everyone from the cave who is part of the original incident just in case they're a liability to you. Um, so unfortunately, even though I was part of the medical team, I wasn't there when he started moving. But essentially, he uh, he had been presenting almost normal, I think, for at least a day at that point. Maybe Mark can jump in. But it, had, it was a lack of vomiting blood and stool was returning more to normal. And that's when this decided he was stable enough and the rigging was ready for him to move. Well, you can only imagine, you know, looking at the trek. So, Mark, I'm hearing everything from a week to 10 days that you were down there. What's actually true there? Uh, so, in total, I was down there even lo- longer than 10 days. Um, so, in total, I entered the cave probably on the 29th. Onset of symptoms was on the 1st, and then I did not exit the cave till the 12th. So I was probably down in the cave in total two weeks, and from the point of onset of symptoms to exiting the cave was 12 days. Oh, good grief. Becky, any thoughts for them? So many. Um, So in that 12th... (laughs) 12-day period, was it essentially like a makeshift hospital? Like, what were your days like? Were you 
obviously able to eat and drink some to sustain yourself, but like, what was the day to day like for you down there? Um, no, that's a good question. Just because most uh, most listeners probably aren't that familiar with the cave environment in the first place. So, setting the stage of what is it like just in the cave establishes the baseline for what it was like for me, which really wasn't that much different. So, your your base in cave camp is a very uh, rudimentary, austere camping environment on the surface. Uh, so you'll have your cave tents, you'll have your sleeping bag, your ground pads, your vapor barrier. Uh, you'll have your own, you know, all of your own personal layers. The camp itself, that tent is built on the flat surface that you can possibly find because obviously the cave environment is a, a very rough one and you don't have unlimited space to find a beautiful camp you have to work with what the cave gives you luckily the thousand meter camp was actually in a quite nice area it was uh, managed to find one of the few dry spots within the cave um, there wasn't that much air movement this is a essentially an older passage that was no longer active um, just uh you know 30 meters away 40 meters away in in both directions there's active waterfalls high levels of humidity, constant, you know, mist in the air, et cetera. But that, that one spot was pretty well isolated. Um, there was a small camp kitchen that was established, a camp bathroom that's set up pretty far away from your, your living area. So your day-to-day -day in camp is basically you're either in a tent, you're in like the kitchen area, um, or you're out, you know, performing tasks within the cave. You're trying to achieve your objectives. So once you're you're isolated to camp, your day-to-day -day is a pretty uneventful sit around in a tent, chat with the people who are there, and, uh, you know, periodically have your meals. Um, in my case, meals for a period of time had been um, uh, oral intake, uh, starting off with liquids and then on the edge of attempting solids. But this would be a, a topic of high debate from different doctors as to in a traditional ICU environment, you're going to have no oral intake because you don't want to put any type of pressure on the stomach. You don't want to increase the chance of, you know, further, uh, you know, rupture to whatever um, ulceration, laceration um, you have in the stomach. You don't want to expand the stomach wall, stretching them. But at the same time, you're able to comfortably get IV nutrients in a uh, neutral, you know, room temperature environment where there are no stressors. In the cave environment, there's still a thousand meters to get out. There are, you know, it's 39 degrees or so. Um, you you need a lot more calories than in a nice ICU environment. So at first I was going with oral intakes, but after rebleeds, um, another doctor arrived who did have IV-based nutrients, and so we then transitioned to an IV nutrient only. So I wouldn't even call that a diet. Uh, so I probably spent seven days without eating or drinking anything. Well, Joe, this is a perfect question for you because, you know, you're certainly familiar with the ER environment, but you're also familiar with the austere environment working USAR and uh, how much the rules can change as far as what you need to do for a patient, especially one that's strapped, right? Yeah, no question about it. I mean, I, I was just thinking a million different thoughts as I was listening to the answer to that last question. I, I, I can imagine that uh, 
the caloric needs for you in that environment are tremendous. Uh, I mean, you're trying to stay warm. Uh, I, I'm curious to know where the blood came from. Was that like O negative blood that was uh, part of the the cave response system, or was that some connection that this physician had and uh, sort of how that worked? as well as just meeting day-to-day needs of yourself uh, and uh, the team that was there sort of helping to take care of you. Did, did you guys have like a daily supply of, you know, food and water? And did you have electricity of any sort, you know, using batteries or, or sort of what did you do there? That's a tough place to try to take care of a, a pretty sick patient is in a cave in a, an extremely austere environment. It, it is austere. So the only electricity that we have is based on batteries. Um, that is an entertaining uh, side comment, which is that I did have um, possible generators that I was thinking about bringing into the cave, but it didn't work out this year uh, to utilize a uh, hydroelectric uh, power source from the waterfalls down there. But uh, sadly, without that implemented, you only have the electricity that you carry down, which is minimal battery life. Um, your food is what you carry in. Water, luckily, there is a water source in the cave. You have to be very careful to purify it. This can be done um, either by boiling it, by using tablets, uh, running it through filters. You know, there's a selection of options for purification, but obviously you need to purify it. Uh, food, when we tie it to that water source, is all uh, your traditional, like, dehydrated. You'll probably think Mountain House is, is a, a common name that everyone will probably recognize um, in the this sports world. Um, but then you can obviously just buy anything that has minimal water content and that when you carry it down, it's, you know, you just add water for cooking. Um, you have fuel sources, generally liquid fuels. You can either go in with canisters, which is a, a common one that people do when camping, although in this case, it's more weight efficient to actually go in with true liquid fuels and then use refillable canisters. Um, and as far as uh, how do you take care of the necessities, um, generally there is a, a, a bathroom established within the camp relatively far away. Uh, your When you pee, uh, you can pee into active water sources, um, which will dilute and flush it out of the entire cave system. Uh, and then when you take care of your solid waste, uh, there's a range of options within the expedition world from a true carryout environment to one where you're keeping it isolated in one limited spot within the cave, you know, plastic bags, etc. A um, lot of different options. And unfortunately, when you're talking rescue environment with this volume of people, uh, waste management was a very significant challenge. And sometimes the, uh, the, the volume of people, hundreds of people working their way through this cave, um, just overwhelmed the the resources of the cave but uh but yeah it certainly is not an icu it is not a hospital environment and so the decisions that you make down there are very different from when you're in the hospital well i pose that question to you joe because you know most er docs would say well no the icu type patients have very strict you know, guidelines and so forth. But Joe, having worked in some pretty austere environments, might go, well, you know, maybe we need to deal with what we have. Well, I think that's, you know, that's definitely part of it. I, I'm I'm thinking in, in terms of uh, had you rolled into my emergency department with the symptoms that you described, 
you know, you obviously would have received the transfusion fairly quickly, and then you'd have been uh, scuttled off to the GI lab for endoscopy and uh, whatever was necessary to get the bleeding under control. Um, in the environment that you were in, uh, it, it certainly sounds like you got the medication started to sort of reduce stomach acid and all that sort of stuff. And then the blood transfusions, was there any other therapy that they were able to do in that environment? There's not too much in the way of therapies. The, uh, the blood transfusions occurred, which were all O negative transfusions. That was, a. Uh, Another one of the spectacular accomplishments between Jessica, the Turkish doctors, the European Cave Rescue Association um, medical chair, Danish, uh, who's a Hungarian doctor, uh, they worked to collect um, a lot of effort into getting that blood. Traditionally, blood is not permitted outside of the hospital, let alone being sent off into the middle of nowhere where there's currently an American paramedic and then a Hungarian doctor about to go into a cave and provide blood transfusions uh, in an environment where they're not uh, not permitted. So we're, we're already breaking all sorts of rules. But some of the treatment was uh, pretty straightforward. So during a re-bleed, uh, once the doctor was present with all of their standard medications, um, it was... Um, probably a pretty common therapy, excluding the ability to actually do endoscopic imaging and take proactive measures against the bleed. Um, but she, uh, during a re-bleed, she gave uh, 500 uh, octoplus blood coagulation factors, um, one gram of uh, tranexamic acid, 250 milligrams of estestylate. Um, and so this is well outside my knowledge range, but... Um, Let's see, 500 milliliters of isolite crystalloid infusion, 80 milligrams of prantoprazole um, spread over two hours. So that was the the uh, the therapy given during one of the re-bleeds. Wow, what do you think did, about that, Joe? <laughs> did, did you become as significantly symptomatic in the in the subsequent bleeds as you had with the initial? Nowhere close. The initial one was was obviously the, the concerning one. Essentially, once Jessica arrived with fluids and we got four, um, four units of fluids back into me, the first three immediately, the fourth one, uh, after maybe 18 hours or so, or so, we put onto a drip. Um, that brought me back to superficially a good state. And then once uh, Dr. Zudi arrived, followed by the actual units of blood, that was pretty much the moment of, I'm going to live, things are going to be good, I'm getting out of this cave. There were there were no real questions after that. The, the discussions with Dr. Zudi were pretty consistent that even if I had a, uh, even if I had a re-bleed, she has the necessary medications to bring it under control under all likely scenarios. Obviously, you can always have a um, extraordinary event, and we just wouldn't be able to do anything about it, and I still die. But by and large, she had the medications necessary to to deal with anything. So she responded immediately upon my recognizing that I was bleeding again. Um, that was, you know, within 15 minutes, I had uh, all the therapies um, administered, and the bleed was brought under control. Obviously, I I was more symptomatic, and I decreased in you know, stability, but, 
nowhere close to to the time period until Jessica arrived. Gotcha. Well, one, one not, are... not to skip too far ahead in the story, but but what what additional medical intervention did you have after you were out of the cave scenario? No, absolutely. That uh, it makes sense. So so once I was out of the cave, what you described is exactly what happened. I was flown over to the emergency room of a, a nearby hot well, a reasonably nearby hospital. Um, the medicine state hair hospital was spectacular. They got me admitted. They immediately uh, did two more uh, units of blood, got me over to the GI department first thing in the morning, got the endoscopic imaging performed. And what they actually found is that I was essentially uh, predominantly healed already, that the amount of time it took from when uh, the bleed stopped in cave to when I actually got to the hospital, um, they really... They saw a predominantly healed um, uh, lesion, found no other uh, signs of any other of other issues. Uh, they did recommend a colonoscopy, um, but at the same time, there was you know had discussion with them, and the likelihood you know of having two bleed simultaneously one upper GI, one lower GI was just exceptionally unlikely. And they agreed that once I was back home, I could have all the necessary follow-ups. So those are now scheduled. Um, coming up within a week, I will be heading back for follow-up exams, which will likely include another endoscopic review of my upper GI and then a colonoscopy for the lower GI, make sure everything looks good. So full circle, answer your question, what additional therapies, therapies did I receive outside of the cave? None. Just a continuation of pantoprazole. That's actually awesome. I love that. <laughs> the idea that that uh, you just powered through a significant GI bleed uh, and, and got it taken care of. Was there any uh, idea as to why you may have developed the ulcer in the first place? No, that's one of the. I'll I'll call it an annoyance because obviously for me it's quite uh, serious to know that I don't have, a, a, a for the future, a pre-existing medical condition. I need to know that I'm healed. Um, yeah. Obviously, you're not going to go to a thousand meters with any indication that you have a life-threatening or even, honestly, a, a, any type of, of medical or physical concern like this, because not only is it putting yourself at risk, you are impacting the entire expedition and rescue teams. So I want to know that everything is successfully healed and that I'm ready to go again. So the fact that when I got out, I had already received antibiotics, pantoprazole had been administered on a continual basis, that I had received all the other therapies means that while H. pylori is obviously one of the primary causes of, um, of a stomach ulcer and weakens the stomach lining, I tested negative because, you know, the, the, the results are already being contaminated. Um, the fact that the ulcer had already healed meant that they couldn't see it bleeding and confirm, yes, this is the bleed, this is where it's coming from. When this heals, we're done. Uh, the volume of bleeding, uh, because Zudi estimated that I lost something in the range of, I believe, 4 to 4.5 liters of blood in total across uh, everything that was vomited and in the stool. Um, the healed uh shall we say, ulcer that was in the stomach looked too small to have generated that volume of bleeding. Um, but every single time I vomited, I vomited into a, uh, a newly emptied bucket. We estimated the volume of blood that I vomited every single time, et cetera. And uh, 
yeah, I was losing blood. So again, full circle to answer your question, do we know what happened? Unfortunately not. Uh, you're back into that world of like stress ulcers really isn't a thing. High stress doesn't create ulcers. Um, the foods that you eat, eating spicy food, it doesn't do it. Um, I don't take NSAIDs on a regular basis. and I basically never take NSAIDs. Um, I drink very rarely, even from a social standpoint, it's exceptionally rare that I drink. I drink coffee very rarely. So every single one of the items on the list that would uh, would be a an immediate red flag for high risk for ulcer, it's not on the list. So H. pylori combined with we don't know. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I hear your frustration, and uh, I, I get it. Uh, you're right. You'd almost rather have a very straightforward uh, answer to the 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 reason you that that might have occurred, so that you could simply change your behavior or whatever is necessary there, and be done with it. But now you're in a little bit of a nebulous uh, zone. Yeah. I even went and uh, got one of those uh, nutrient. Uh allergy slash uh, um, intolerance tests, even though the they're essentially unreliable, just to see what the results were. And uh, of the, you know, assorted intolerances and allergic reactions that I have, there's no, there's not something that's like I eat or drink this every single day, continually correlating to one of the theoretical intolerances. Um, so it's a, uh, Yep. The mystery. <laughs> Becky, well, you have a question, right? Yeah. I'm curious about any post-traumatic stress that you have from this. Are you, like, how are you mentally, and are you planning to go back into a cave? It sort of sounds like it, based on your, you know, need to be cleared medically. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, no, so that was... Certainly one of the major questions that, that uh, people like to ask is like, what was it, what did it feel like um, in the cave? What did it feel like when you were getting closer to dying? What did it feel like for Jessica to leave? What, it, what did it feel like for Jessica to get back? Um, and honestly, I think that uh, everyone here plus, plus the, uh, the audience will understand an answer of you spend enough time in the medical field. I was an EMT. I've responded to in total, I think, you know, God, I don't know how many thousands plus calls um, over my my duration in the agency, fire department, EMS, you know, tech rescue, training on a very regular basis. I spend weeks every single year teaching cave rescue, uh, countless more weekends on different training courses. This just felt, other than being on the patient side, everything just felt normal. Like I've literally, even though I was in a litter for, I don't really remember the exact number, 20, 30 something hours being carried out of the cave, I've spent more hours in a litter during training courses. And honestly, it's a hell of a lot scarier when people are learning how to do a cave rescue and you're in the litter than when you have really highly experienced cave rescuers that are all in, you know, professional level teams coming in to get you out. Um, so no, there is no, no stress from this. This was not caused by caving. It was not caused by sports. This was a medical illness. And honestly, even if there was an incident that was related to caving, um, you know, what do you, someone plays football and then they get injured while they're playing. Do you suddenly ask them, are you ever going to play again? Of course they're going to play again. They're going to heal. They're going to get right back in the game. 
uh, it's the same thing here, you know, heal up, make sure that I'm, I'm capable of going back in, that I'm not putting any myself or others at risk, but go caving. So Dan, I, I didn't want to leave you out. Did you have any thoughts or questions? Yeah, just one question that came to mind as I was thinking about this uh, is, so I think, you know, just generally, I'm thinking about from the general public standpoint, I mean, I think most people are probably more familiar with climbing and the risks of climbing, rock climbing. We've had, I, I mean, I've, I've seen some movies, you know, like the, the free solo film of climbing without any gear and all the, you know, the, like the risks associated with climbing. Caving seems to me to be a little bit less known. I guess, what are the risks? Obviously, there are many, but I guess, like, what are the top risks for people who cave? And like, what generally do you worry most about before this incident? And was this type of thing on your mind before this happened? And do you assess risks differently after this event? No, it's a great series of questions. So for the, the general audience, what are the risks of caving? So if you take a look at cave rescues statistically, uh, you're most commonly going to have people that got lost, people that had batteries die, their headlamps are out for some reason. Uh, they just get so exhausted that they they couldn't get themselves back out of the cave because unlike many other sports, there's no easy exit. And you're traveling down first usually, and then you're climbing your way back out. So your level of exertion is towards the end of the trip, not the beginning of the trip. Uh, so those are the, the common ones. Um, but once you start getting into, uh, shall we say, a bit more of the advanced cavers, you know, people that are able to go down to a thousand meters, uh, your risks are going to be associated with rock fall, um, human error, top of the list following that, that you make a mistake working in a vertical environment, even in a horizontal environment. Caves are not nice, smooth paths. They're very 3D. Uh, even if you're not on rope, that you are able to to navigate uh, essentially horizontally, it's not horizontal. Um, and that you just slip, you trip, you fall, um, sprain something, any type of normal traumatic injury that can occur above ground can also occur underground. Uh, flooding is going to be one of the ones that's very hard to deal with. And that's uh, from the standpoint of you need to be paying close attention to the weather patterns, the uh, flood basin, the drainage basin that covers that cave, and how the cave reacts to inbound water. Um, and so for really deep caves, the deeper you get, the more water from the surface is often converging. Luckily, Morge is not a cave that's likely to flood significantly during the months that we were there. Um, but in the spring snowmelt time period, this is not a cave that I would go into. Um, and so those are the risks. Uh, does the risk assessment change? Uh, honestly, that was a topic of discussion, uh, essentially even you know during the rescue, and then at the European Cave Rescue Association meeting, which just happened in Portugal, um, just a, a short time ago. Is do we change the medical kits for the expedition that goes into the caves, the personal med kits? Uh, and essentially, the answer is no. Once you start trying to deal with the exceptionally unlikely medical related challenges, where do you stop? Um, at some point, you're trying to carry an entire ambulance, an entire, you know, ICU into the cave to deal with all those eventualities. Um, and 
as was mentioned earlier, there's a limit to what you can physically carry in. Uh, so you need to be very weight conscious. Up to the surface, obviously, if you have doctors as part of the expedition, they can legally have more medications. Paramedics can have certain. But once you start traveling to other countries, you also have limitations on what you're able to bring and what you're able to have because you're obviously going to be operating without a license at that point. So you need local doctors that are within their jurisdictions. So the short answer is going to be we prepare extensively for the high probability traumatic-related incidents. And there's really, the doctors are pretty conclusive in that. There's really no drastic change to anything from a medical illness standpoint that we would make. Uh, they're just so unlikely. I want to end talking about the actual rescue, but I want to go back to what uh, we were talking about a bit ago. Jessica, how did this affect you mentally? I mean, I can imagine you having to lead him to go out and find help was pretty stressful. And then coming back and seeing the shape he was in, how, how is this sitting, uh, you know, with you now? Well, I guess maybe lucky for me, Mark's presentation was a lot better when I left him. He was essentially normal. Um, just so his ability to move around and talk was not uh, inhibited a lot yet, except he was getting sick again, vomiting the blood and did have more uh, tardy stool. Um, we were hoping that the bleed was stopping at that point. So leaving him, it was more of a hopeful feeling that uh, this would resolve itself in the cave and he'd be able to exit on his own. And when I was on the surface, we got a call while I was coordinating medical treatment that he was getting much worse. And that that was stressful because then you know that every minute is lost blood. And there's just some things that you can't coordinate in the middle of the night in a foreign country. So to have to wait for things to arrive when you're on a mountaintop and there's really nothing you can do. You know, that was that was the hardest part, just having to wait. And when I was in the cave and moving, it just it felt very natural. People call it like a mad rush, but you can't rush in a cave. Like you can't have six straight hours of adrenaline um, when you're moving. You just essentially fall back on your habits, which uh, that's why you make good ones, <laughs> so that even if you're you're tired or uh, having that sense of urgency, you can get there safely. So the worst part was certainly just the waiting initially, and after I was on the surface and out of the cave, I had only the information I was given to have the picture of Mark. And uh, at one point, they were saying that he was decompensating and there was a bit of uh, an overreaction to a blood sample. And the word had been that his kidneys were failing and he might die in two to three days. So that was that was honestly very stressful. And I very actively paid attention to my thoughts because there's just no point in thinking of the worst. And I, I'm i a rescuer. Like, I have to do things. I'm, I'm busy. I want to be helpful. And I would just close my eyes and just push anything away that was negative and focus very, very strongly on staying positive. And, and that was a big help. But it was, it was honestly work. Like, I had to do it mindfully. And that was an interesting experience for sure. Well, it sounds like you certainly did everything right for Mark. Mark, lastly, I want to just talk about some of the things about the rescue itself and tell me 
tell me how much of this is actually true. But it said there was more than 150 people from seven countries, including Turkey, Hungary, and Bulgaria, joining the effort um, that sparked an international rescue operation led by at least 200 aid, aid workers from countries such as the U.S., Hungary, Poland, Romania, and Ukraine. Um, they actually had like a command center where they were looking at maps and setting up lines of communications and, you know, where are we going to add rope lines, uh, stations where we may need to, to stop on the way up. Um, and different teams were responsible for different sections of the cave. You want to go with that? That was all sorts of topics. So a lot of the general news reports regarding the surface were were quite accurate. I think that the general count, total number of people that had responded on site being over 200 was accurate. Of those 200 or so, I think the rough count of cave rescuers uh, would be something about 127. Um, We do have a final accounting somewhere, but I don't have that uh, off the top of my head. Uh, there absolutely was a, a full command center set up, and Jessica could actually speak to this uh, better than I can because she was on the surface. I was uh, down in the cave and stuck. Um, but the the general gist of what you described has mostly accuracies. Uh, Jessica, do you want to jump in and, and take an answer to this one uh, from the top as well and see what you got? You're asking me to describe describe the what the surface was like in the command? Uh, answer Sam's question uh, from the beginning. Ignore the fact that I said anything, and let's see what the answer is like. Yeah, um, you know, obviously this was a very complex operation, so a lot of communication and coordination had to go into it. Um, they, you know, when they were talking about that command area where they were looking at communication plans, uh, plans about getting through narrow areas, adding rope lines, and that kind of thing. Um how much were you involved in that? So this is where the rescue really shines in that it was a multi-country effort, multinational effort. So uh, I'm looking at a, a photo of the surface right now. And at one point in the initial rescue team, there were, I think, people from four different countries all working on one team. And to get them all there was a, a ton of coordination because it's not like Turkey had thought of needing to call in a a cave doctor before from another country and have like three different rescue teams arrive all in one place. So I think it was something like 2,000 messages and who knows how many phone calls for one of the original coordinators. And the European Cave Rescue Association was huge with this and also the local Turkish uh, cave rescue and the government as well. So for, for some of the teams, they were waiting on official letters from the government to arrive. Um, and that's why on the 7th, when they arrived, things really uh, changed quite a bit. So the command was essentially one person in charge of operations, and then each country had its own representative that was supposed to stay very accessible so that updates could be uh, passed along as soon as possible. And they segmented the cave such that each country could take a section doesn't always work that way because, you know, resources move around in the cave and sometimes it would be multiple nations at once. Uh, the H- Hungarians in particular were mentoring some of the Turkish and um, 
passing along their knowledge a lot, which is spectacular. Um, and yeah, essentially it's just one phone and one uh, text-based communication called Cablink. And that was how they passed messages along. And they had uh, one at 500 meters and 1,000 to start. And then they added two other phones as well, uh, maybe even three. So there were various stations throughout the cave where people could communicate. Something you may not have thought of, Mark, what a great training experience you provided for them. We were regularly joking that uh, I had organized the pre-meeting excursion zero for the ECRA meeting. The ECRA <laughs> meeting was organized for Portugal, and usually we have some pre-meeting activities. Uh, so they said that this was the best pre-meeting activity that had ever been organized for, for, the, for the rescue meeting. Unintentionally. Well, yeah. maybe... Education is what it's all about, right? Absolutely. And and I'll tell you, uh, you know, Joe, we, we talk and joke about this on the show all the time. But um, when you come up with your new training evolutions, it seems like we always come across the, the one thing you hadn't thought of before. Um, what, what, what does this bring to mind from a training standpoint for you? Uh, wow. Uh, you know, where do you start? Uh, obviously, uh, Jessica and Mark are going to get some phone calls if there's ever a request to try to put something together for this. Uh, and uh, but we would certainly uh, absolutely need their uh, expertise because I, I have uh, very little in this environment. Yeah, definitely. Um, and we want to thank um Paragon Medical Education Group and Joe's team there with all the disaster training you all do. Um, this is certainly a unique and specialized environment in, in austere training and, and situations. Um, but uh, what all do you have coming up for uh, Paragon in the near future? Uh, we've got uh, several things uh, happening. It's a little bit quiet over the upcoming holiday season, but uh, next spring is perking up a lot. Uh, clearly, with all the uh, current turmoil, there's a lot of military activity uh, and training coming up, but also quite a bit of stuff for EMS. So we uh, are always eager to talk to folks so that we can plan out uh, the, the training that fits their needs. And we would ask them to uh, give us a call or locate us on the web at Paragon Medical Education Group or uh, on Facebook uh, and through the Disaster Podcast. And we always thank you as we do each in every episode for uh, supporting the show and making it so we can bring the show out to people over the last 10 years. Uh, we certainly uh, appreciate that. Um, real quick, uh, Mark, is, is there uh, anywhere that you uh, keep a, a presence online where people can follow your caving exploits if they want to? <laughs> I appreciate that. I, I do not. I'm very much uh, not active in social media. I've got a Facebook and an Instagram and they are, infrequently active uh, caving is a pretty niche activity um, but uh, they are welcome to to jump on my instagram or my facebook or honestly just send me an email um, i'm i'm pretty easy to find and i'm happy to chat with absolutely anyone about anything um, so one of the things that i had had founded uh, is caving academy which jessica had mentioned and that was the opportunity to learn caving it's more focused on advanced training so it's not so much on getting new cavers in uh, getting new cavers in, people that are interested in caving within the United States is associated with grottos. 
um, and they're under the National Speleological Society. And those grottos or caving clubs are a great intro um, where you can go on trips with people that are already experienced cavers um, in a, essentially a safe, controlled manner and start building your experience. Uh, definitely don't encourage people just to search around until they find a cave and dive in head first. It's a, you know, there are some risks, even though caving is a very safe sport in general. Uh, it's safe because of, you know, maintaining good training. I'll also take a quick moment to mention that for training with cave rescue, there is the National Cave Rescue Commission. And so should there ever be the need for a response to a cave style environment, um, one of the great resources that NCRC offers are regional coordinators. And those regional coordinators are familiar with any cave trained personnel, cave rescue teams within their region. And so you, you reach out, that information is publicly on their website. You give your regional coordinator a call, and they immediately start providing all of the resources to respond to a cave rescue. One of the challenges that we run into in the cave rescue world is that, and, and you'll immediately understand this one, is that governmental entities, the agency having jurisdiction, likes to maintain control, and it likes government teams to be the ones that perform rescues. But the problem is if you take a fire department, an EMS squad, a, a USAR team, a technical rescue team that has never been in a cave before and does not know that environment and suddenly try to send them in, um, they will do their absolute best, but they're just in an unfamiliar territory and don't have that training. Um, and so one of the challenges that we run into is helping government understand that generally it has a lot of value for those emergency response teams, agency having jurisdiction to work in close collaboration with actual cave rescue trained people. Um, and so that's that's always a tough one. But if you are interested in training for some cave rescue, I am happy to help. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely put people in touch with you. Uh, we, we are excited to hear more about that. Um, and, and thank you and Jessica for coming on the show. Um, Becky, where can folks find you if they want to find out what you're up to online? No, I'm not really posting a whole lot anywhere uh, these days either. So, um, lost my headphones. We'll just say the Disaster Podcast Facebook group. That works. That works. Every now and then. How about you, Dan? You can still find me a bit on Twitter at WX Depot and also the Disaster Podcast Facebook group. Excellent. And, uh, Sam? Well, all of those places. Um, and we should mention to uh, these two that we do have a very big community on Facebook. Just to look up Disaster Podcast because we're the only one. And if you guys were to join, that would be a good way for folks to ask you specific questions about caving if you are so interested. So we'd appreciate that. Otherwise, on social media, I'm under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11. And uh, you'll find me there in the community or disasterpodcast.com. How about you, Jamie? You can find me under the handle Podmedic in most social media locations. So please friend or follow me there. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely going to have to reach out to a few of our wilderness medicine docs. I'm sure they're going to be loving this episode when it comes out. Uh, just knowing the all of our austere partners out there that we've had on the show over the years. I, I think this is a, just a fascinating episode and are really going to appreciate the time that, that Jessica and Mark took to be on the show today. Um, Sam, thanks for wrangling this episode together. It's uh, It's been one of our highlight episodes, I think, for the year. I can say that for sure. 
Yes, definitely one of my favorites. And I think we'll be talking to them again, maybe about caving in general. And let's uh, stay in touch, you two, on our little um, messenger thing we set up. And uh, what can you say about this? Miracles happen, and I think this is one of them. <laughs>